0: Good evening. Tonight brings us to our monthly question and answers, and we have six questions that we hope to get through tonight. Maybe there were some others, I believe, that were left out, but these are the six we were able to get to, so we'll leave the others for the month of March and for Neil and and our theme this year about being balanced believers. Hopefully our question and answer sessions will help us to do that. And so in these questions, we'll try to see what the Bible say and to properly and come to a sound conclusion. We say this every question and answer session, and it might be good to just always mention it every time, but just keep in mind that in the question and answer sessions there are some what I would call areas of judgment and even some areas that may be areas of difference. And so I'm going to do my best to show you what I believe the Bible teaches on these subjects and there may be a difference of opinion. It may spark more questions and that's welcomed as well. But we've got to be sure that we bind what God binds and in areas where God is not that we don't do that as well. So for the first question tonight, go ahead and turn your Bible to first Corinthians 11 and on these questions, they're abbreviated up there. But I may remember a little bit more that was submitted. And so I may give more of the background on the question as I can remember that. So question number one is the head covering mentioned in first Corinthians 11, four through six binding today. And the person that posed this question added in addition to that. And what about other head coverings like baseball caps and things of that nature? Do men and or women have to remove those things Before they pray to God. And so that's a custom that happens. And is that in any way, shape, or form connected to the head cover? Corinthians 11. So if you have your Bible open, Paul begins in verse one by saying there to imitate him as he imitates Christ. He praises the Corinthians in verse two for following the commandments and traditions as he has delivered them to them. And then in verse three, he begins to talk about this relationship of headship. The head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is man or her husband. And the head of Christ is God. And he talks about the fact of being praying to God in certain fashions is acceptable and others is unacceptable. Every man that prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who does that, she every woman that prays with her head uncovered, she dishonors her head. It's if all as if she were shaven, if her head was shorn off, Paul says in verse five. And if she won't cover her head, Paul says she should just shave it off. But we know that's dishonorable. And so she should wear the head covering. In verses three through six, Paul talks about these different areas of headship and for the man, the head of man is Christ, the head of the woman. Some translations have man. The ESV goes with husband. But the idea is there's this role of submission. Some commentators believe and I agree with them that there was this culture of promiscuity that was in Corinth and some of the women in that territory. They communicated that they were a part of that culture by the way they're doing their hair. And so they wouldn't cover their hair to say to other men that they were available in those ungodly ways. And Paul is saying to the women in Corinth, don't do that. You dishonor your head. I don't believe here he's speaking about the physical head. He's saying you dishonor your head, which is the man or your husband that he just mentioned in verse three. And so Paul says, I want you to adorn yourself in such a way as to not be a stumbling block to other men and to not disrespect your husband. If you look down at verse 13, he'll say this again. Don't you know that it's improper for a woman to have her head uncovered? And in verse 14, there's an appeal made to nature where Paul will say, doesn't nature itself teach you that it's a shame for a man to have long hair and for a woman to cut her hair? And then he concludes in verse 16 by saying in the churches of God, there's no other custom than the one that he's laying down here about these areas of judgment. And so from the context, it appears there's a unique situation in Corinth. And I wish I knew more about it and commentators wish they did, too. But we don't know enough. But there is a unique situation in this area where for a woman to pray or prophesy with her head uncovered would be dishonorable to her husband. And just keep in mind, so this may not spark another question in the book of first Corinthians in chapter 11 and in chapter 14, there is the mention of women both praying and prophesying. But they do that without violating what Paul mentioned in first Timothy 2 about male leadership in the church. But Paul is saying there's something they can do that is customarily ungodly in their culture and they shouldn't do it so that they won't be a stumbling block. This was not the practice everywhere in the first century. And we know that. Because in first Timothy chapter two and verse nine and in first Peter three and verse three, it says the women there had braided hair and they even had gold that was braided into their hair to show some sort of affluence. And Paul and Peter both cautioned against that. But the point is, how would they know that if they were wearing hair coverings? Evidently, the churches that Peter wrote to in first Peter in Asia Minor in the letter to Timothy, who was in Ephesus, it was written to a congregation where women didn't have their heads covered. And so Paul and Peter both could say, make sure that you don't overdo it. And that you keep your dress modest in the Old Testament. It was the reverse in Genesis thirty-eight, twelve through 16. When Tamar wore the veil, Judah said, this woman is a prostitute. This woman is a harlot in the Old Testament time to wear the veil meant that you were promiscuous or that you were, a quote, unquote, loose woman. But in the New Testament, in the area of Corinth, it was the opposite. The challenge for every Bible student, and I believe this is one of the great difficulties of Bible study, is to approach the text and to try to determine what is binding from that culture in the first century or in the Old Testament, in the ancient Near East. What stays there and then what parts come over? There are principles to be learned from every passage, but what specifics must we obey? And as you examine First Corinthians 11, I believe it becomes apparent that the head coverings were limited To that first century. By the way, we don't know how long the head coverings were. Some people believe it was more like one of those shields, you know, that came from the top of the head, maybe even to the the midsection. And so sometimes people say, I want to wear the head covering to honor what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11. But they never have on one of those little visor things that may have been what Paul's describing here. And so it's a limited custom. Now, the second part of this question before we move on to number two, what about praying in the assembly? And do you have to remove your hat or head covering when you do so? So far as I can see from the Bible, there's nothing in the New Testament that suggests that a person has to remove a head covering before they pray to God. A hat or anything of that nature. I believe it's an American custom practiced in other places, and it can be done as a sign of reverence. But the Bible says nothing about it disrupting our reception with heaven because we have a hat on our head. But for any reason, if it were a stumbling block to one, Romans 14, 23 says... It would be a sin for us to violate our conscience. And if we can't pray in comfort and with assurance, so long as our heads are covered, the Bible teaches we should remove it. So long as we don't bind this on others, what God hasn't bound. All of this in 1 Corinthians 11 is about culture. And Paul was saying to the Corinthians, in summary, don't do anything to go along with the ungodliness in Corinth. You do what would happen in line with righteousness and purity. And the same thing is true in every culture. Fashion. I knew a man who said at time Christians should never be the first ones to try out a fashion trend and never the last ones to wave goodbye to one that is on its way out. And I think that's a happy medium. Paul was saying to the people in Corinth, to the women, make sure that you dress and adorn yourself in such a way that you don't become associated with godliness in your culture. And whatever that would be in our time period, Paul would say the same thing. The principle remains, but the practice of head coverings does not. Now, here's number two. What is James 2, 1 through 13 addressing? And does the Bible give us guidelines for clothing and worship? The question that's original, that was originally sent in says in James 2, 1 through 13, I thought the conduct or the I believe the context was about partiality. Is this giving us some type of guidelines for dressing and apparel in worship and what we should and shouldn't wear? And then it also goes on to talk about people that come to worship, maybe from a ball game or something of that sort. And are they ungodly or irreverent because they're not dressed up when they come in? Greg read this text for us a moment ago, but go ahead and turn to James two one through 13. And let's notice what James is addressing. And then we'll talk about how it applies to guidelines as it relates to what we wear to worship. The answer to the first part of this question is what is James two one through 13 addressing in its context? It's addressing partiality. In verse one, James says, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality or with respect of persons. And then he gives an example. If a man were to come into your assembly with gold rings and fine clothing, and there comes in also another man in shabby clothing. And you say to the one with the fine clothing, you sit. Shabby clothing, you stand there or sit at my footstool. Haven't you become judges of yourselves and those that practice evil thoughts? James says, don't do that. In verse 8 down through verse 10, he says, if you fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you practice partiality, you've broken the law and you become transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law and breaks it in one point, in this point of prejudice or judgment based on outward appeal, you become guilty of all of it and you're a transgressor. And then he concludes in 12 through 13 by saying, you're going to be judged by the law of liberty. Don't you want that? And so treat other people the same way, because if you don't show mercy, you won't receive any. James 2, 1 through 13, in its context, is about partiality. And he merely lifts up this example about clothing as an example to say, listen, when people come into the assembly, don't judge them based on what they're wearing. The whole point is in any facet of our lives, we shouldn't make prejudicial judgments of other people based merely on the exterior. However, while partiality is his point. He does say some things to us about attire and what we should be thinking about when we come to the assembly about our clothing and about the clothing of other people. The Bible says nothing in the Old or New Testament, specifically under the new covenant, about our clothing being anything that impresses God or about the fact that we should try to judge other people based on what they wear. John seven twenty four, Jesus says, don't judge according to outward appearance. Instead, you're to make a righteous judgment. Also included in this question was this idea. Sometimes people say about what we wear to worship, we're supposed to, quote, unquote, give God our best. The reality is the New Testament says nothing about our outward appearance, anything to God about our righteousness. Instead, it says what we put on on the inside is what matters to God. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, Colossians 3:10 through 14. This idea of putting on the new man is what God ultimately wants us to do. And if we're going to be God's people, we can't buy what he hasn't. You know, I've heard Christians say this sometimes. Maybe they'll go out of town somewhere and they'll go to a a worship service somewhere else and they come back and say, how was it? And they say, well, it was all right, except, you know, they were a little off. You mean off on what? Well, the preacher, you know, he didn't have on a tie and he had that shirt out. And I just don't think they're serious about spiritual things. Now, listen, there may have been some other things that were off, but those things were not off because of what he was wearing or what the people were wearing. Because according to the New Testament, God doesn't judge based on outward judgments. And the New Testament nowhere gives guidelines for what we're to wear in worship. What the New Testament says about apparel is simply this. Christians are to be modest. First Timothy 2, 8 through 10, which means don't draw any appearance to yourself. Often in the New Testament, when modesty is discussed, it's about people that are overdressing. So you might think Matthew 23, 5, Jesus says about the Pharisees. They broaden their phylacteries and they make their robes long. In Luke 20, and verse 46, he says the same thing. They wanted to impress people with what they were wearing. And Paul in 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 10, and Peter in 1 Peter 3, 3 through 6, says to women specifically, don't do that. You don't overdress to impress other people. Adorn yourselves in modest apparel. And that's all the New Testament says. And we should keep it in that same regard. I read an article about this question. And where does this idea of dressing up from worship for worship come from? And what they say is that this began in the early part of the 19th century in England and then in North Northern Europe and then ultimately in America. One Presbyterian minister actually said in 1846, a church loving people is a dress loving people. That's a cute way to say something unbiblical and false. That's all it is. Doesn't have anything to do with that. Some people have said historically that African Americans began to dress up for worship because the only day that they could dress up and get out of the quote-unquote slave clothes was on the first day of the week. And so there are different ideas that are expressed, but this is what we know: the history of dressing up for worship is multi-layered. It's muddy. It's multifaceted. But at the root of it, it's unbiblical. This isn't my plea for us to dress down or against casual or business type of pair. I'd rather like dressing up. I don't have a problem with it. So long as we don't use it as a badge of righteousness by which we say God likes us more or he thinks more of us because we're dressed up because the New Testament doesn't say that to do so would be to add to the gospel. Galatians one, six through nine. And let us think through a few more things on this question before we move on to number three. If we associate this idea of, quote, unquote, giving our best with worship, we may run the risk of being very inconsistent. Suppose somebody says we should dress up because in doing so we give God our best. We probably aren't being consistent for several reasons. Number one, surely we can do in suits and ties. Somebody says, well, we've got to dress up to give God our best. But most people that say that are far more dressed up when they attend a wedding or something of that. sort. if we really wanted to follow that line of reasoning out, surely we could rent tuxedos every first day of the week. That would be better than this. But number two, somebody says in worship, we should dress up because we are giving God our best. In so doing that can't be true, at least in most places, because on Sunday night, in most places, To say nothing of Wednesday night when we're worshiping the same God and doing the exact same thing, studying the same Bible. Many people have transitioned to a more casual and laid back attire. To say that we're giving God our best because of what we wear just won't pan out because at the end of the day, scripture doesn't hold that up as a standard for something that ultimately makes us more pleasing to God And we shouldn't bind it on other people. Now, the last part of this question is about other individuals that may come in to worship services. Listen, when a young child or a teenager, for that matter, comes into service in their uniform from a practice, we shouldn't view that as irreverent or disrespectful. We should view it as a monument of their faithfulness, because what they and their parents are saying, Matthew 633, is that though they've been to practice and to enjoy recreation and exercise, they thought enough of worship to come and to come as they are. When you see a person getting off work and they're in their uniform, what they're saying to us is this. I had other business to tend to before, but I by no means was going to let that hinder me from worshiping God and being around his people. And we should honor such people that do that. When we talk to our friends and neighbors about coming to worship and they say I have nothing to wear, we should assure them that whatever they have is fine. Because in the end, we are far more concerned with them obeying the gospel and wearing Christ than wearing formal clothing that makes us more comfortable. Because the Bible mentions no such thing. If you want to dress up, by all means do so. But just remember, God cannot be impressed with the exterior. We can disappoint him when we dress immodestly, whether that's showing too much or too little. But we don't get God in our corner because we merely dress up the outside. In the end, what matters to God? 1 Peter 3 and verse 4 is a meek and quiet spirit, which is adorned in godliness, which in God's sight is very precious. Number three. Do we have to know why we're baptized? The person says there are obviously some things that would discount a baptism, like if a person didn't know why they were being baptized, if they didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, if they were sprinkled or poured, or if they turn away from Jesus after being baptized. But this question specifically drives at this one idea. Does a person have to know that they're being baptized for the remission or forgiveness of their sins for their baptism to be effective or Is the mere acknowledgement that they're being baptized because they believe Jesus is the son of God enough. So does a person have to know in the moment of being baptized, this is to wash away your sins? Or is it okay if a person says, hey, I want to be baptized and I believe Jesus is the son of God. Does it ultimately matter? The answer to that question is, yes, it does matter. The only reason why baptism has any power whatsoever is because God is working in baptism, Colossians 2 and verse 12, and because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 3 and verse 22. But it matters why we're baptized, and it's not enough to say, well, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. As has already been mentioned, if a person is baptized and they don't believe in Jesus... And they haven't repented of their sins or they haven't made the mouth confession that Jesus is the son of God. You can dump them in water all day, but it won't do anything to remove their sins. But also, if a person says, I believe Jesus is the son of God with no knowledge of their baptism being for the forgiveness of sins, it likewise doesn't have the biblical efficacy that the Bible says baptism accomplishes for several reasons. There are many children in this audience tonight who believe that Jesus is the son of God and they don't doubt it. In fact, some of them could give us the plan of salvation with the verses attached. But if they're four or five years old, we wouldn't baptize them. Why not? We would say, well, they're not at the age of accountability. They have no sins to be remitted. Evidently, there's something that's happening in baptism. More than just the acknowledgement of Jesus as the son of God, as important as that is. The Bible says in Acts 2 in verse 38, when Peter stood before those men on the day of Pentecost, he said in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is to you, your children, all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. Peter said, when you're baptized, guess what's going to happen? God will wash away your sins. He told them that before he did it. When Saul was about to be baptized in Acts twenty-two sixteen. 16, and I said, "Why do you wait? Arise and be baptized, washing away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord." When Peter says in 1 Peter three twenty one, baptism also now saves you. It's the answer of a good conscience toward God. All of these passages, Mark 16, 16, Jesus says he that believes and is baptized will be saved. You see, there's this connection in the New Testament between what happens in baptism and sins being washed away, coupled with belief in Jesus. But not only that, it's impressive to read throughout the epistles and see what they say about baptism to people who've already done it. Look at Romans chapter six. Turn your Bible to Romans chapter six and notice the New Testament epistles don't just say you need to be baptized or that you have been baptized. There seems to be this underlying assumption in the epistles that not only are the individuals being written to already immersed, but that they know why they were baptized, that there's this reasoning between the one writing and the one receiving the letter that they know why they did this. So Romans 6 and verse 3, Paul says, don't you know, this is rhetorical, right? Don't you know that so many of us as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death. Therefore, we're buried with him by baptism into death. That like his Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the father. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the death like his. Will enjoy a resurrection like his, knowing this, that the old man is crucified in sin, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that we no longer should serve sin. Paul reasons with the Romans and he says, You know when you were baptized you were buried. And you know when you were baptized you raised the newness of life. Imagine sitting in the auditorium at the church in Rome and raising your hand and saying, I didn't know that was happening. Why didn't you tell me that? Paul assumes they already know it. What if somebody says, Well, I believe Jesus is the Son of God? And I'm saved. And then you baptize me later. That wouldn't work with Romans six, because Paul says you're baptized and then you rise to walk in newness of life. When somebody says they're saved and then they're baptized later, what they're saying is the moment they believe they were saved, they already had a new life. And then we buried them as a living person. And then they rose to the life they already enjoyed. We don't bury live people. We bury dead people. And so Paul would say, you've got to know why you're doing this. Another thought on this before we move on is there needs to be a balance. And by that, I mean, when we're getting ready to teach somebody what they need to do in order to be saved, we need to strike what I believe the biblical medium between you need to know as little as possible to become a Christian and you need to have a master's degree in theology before you become a Christian. I believe there's a happy medium where we don't come to people as biblical minimalists and say, hey, here are the five facts. Let's dunk you so that we can just say we baptized you while at the same time not calling. The knowledge of Jesus as the son of God, the Bible says that if you believe Jesus is the son of God and you're ready to repent of your sins, you can be baptized. And then you continue steadfastly in the apostles, doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. And so you don't baptize, but you do have to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. And one of those things is that your sins are being forgiven. If somebody's hearing this and they say, well, when I got baptized, I had no clue. Or I've sometimes wondered about why I got baptized. I hear the invitation extended and I know I've been baptized before, but it just kind of gnaws at me a little bit. I'm a little unsure. My advice would be this. Eternity is too long and the judgment is too short to to worry about something like that. If this is a question. Do like the Ethiopian eunuch. You don't have to do it before an audience in private. Acts Chapter eight. Here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Be immersed and take care of it biblically. And here's the last thing. Beware of letting discussions like this cause you to have angst or anxiety about your baptism. And this is what I mean. Biblically speaking, if we're doing it right, we always will know more on the other side of our baptism than we knew before. And so if you say to yourself, you know what? I didn't know all of this when I was baptized. That's the way it's supposed to work. You always will know more on the other side of your baptism. And so if you say to yourself every time you hear a sermon on baptism or becoming a Christian, well, I didn't know that. Maybe I did it wrong. That doesn't mean your knowledge was insufficient. Doesn't mean you did it for the wrong reason. The New Testament is filled with knowledge that we'll learn more about our baptism, our salvation, spiritual blessings enjoyed after we've been baptized that we didn't know in totality when we did. But we have to know at least the bare minimum that Jesus is Christ. That we were wanting to turn away from that, unite in a relationship with him, and that could only be enjoyed as our sins were washed away. And that culminated in the act of baptism. Number four, are ghosts real today? The short answer to this question is no, but maybe there's more that people want to know about this, and so we'll discuss it. The idea of a ghost—it's—it's it, it's an apparition. That's the fancy way to say it—an apparition of a dead person that appears in a sort of, in a sort of haze-type form to individuals that are living. The Greek word in the New Testament is phantasma, and it appears several places. And it's this idea: people think they're seeing a real person, and they don't. There's one specific time this happens in the Old Testament, and we can go there, turn your Bible to First Samuel 28, and then we'll say some things about what takes place in the New Testament. In First Samuel 28, King Saul appears to what we call the witch at Endor. And he appears to her in first Samuel 28 and verse eight. And he says, I want you to bring up for me whoever I tell you. And she says, absolutely not. In verse nine Saul has destroyed all of the necromancers or all of those that practice witchcraft in the land. And you might draw a line back to verse three, because that's where it says Saul did this. He got rid of all of those who practice witchcraft and arts in the land. And she says, I'm not going to do this. He says, don't worry, you can bring him forth. She says, who would you like me to bring forth? He says, Samuel. And then in verse 12, it says, when Samuel came forth, she cried out with a loud cry. She not only realized that Saul was King Saul, but she's Samuel. And then Samuel has a discussion with Saul. This text says several things to us that in no way affirms that ghosts are real or exist today. Number one. The witch at Endor was as surprise as Saul when Samuel came forth, she had nothing to do with bringing him forth. That was all God's doing. Verse 12. She cried out with a loud cry. She shrieked. She was terrified. She didn't know what was going to happen. That's number one. Number two. Did you notice Samuel had to be brought forth? He wasn't just roaming around and just doing whatever he wanted to do. He was somewhere more on that in a moment. And then number three. He was located in the Hadean world. He says in verse 15, why have you disrupted me? He was located. He didn't say, I've just been floating around. He was located in a place. But then we get to the New Testament. The disciples have a problem with this, at least on one occasion. When Jesus is walking on the water, Mark six and verse forty nine and in Matthew 14 and verse twenty six, they cry out and they say it is a ghost. And Jesus assures them it's not. It is me. Do not be afraid. And so people will reason from these passages and say, well, wait a minute. The disciples believe they saw ghosts, And so they wouldn't have said that unless ghosts really did exist. What the Bible teaches is that when an individual dies, our bodies go back to the dust from which they came. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse seven. The spirit goes into what we might call the Hadean realm or the underworld. The Hadean realm has two compartments, one for paradise and one for torment. Jesus told the penitent thief in Luke 23, 43, today you'll be with me in paradise. And that's where they went. And that's where all departed spirits go until the resurrection when the soul is reunited with the body. And there's this great transformation. That's where our souls ultimately reside in the Hadian realm. In Luke 16, when the rich man wanted to break out of the Hadean realm and go and preach to his brothers, Abraham forbade him. He said, you can't leave here. They've got Moses and the prophets. He wasn't able at will to roam around and do as he pleased. Only God can give life to bodies and bring them back. He gives life to all things. 1 Timothy six, 13. He raises the dead. Second Corinthians one, eight and nine. And so until he wills to do that, the devil, darkness and all of its forces can't bring people back to us. And we might have thought we've seen them, But the Bible teaches that's not the case. Well, what about the disciples? What about people that have said that they've seen ghosts? And what about passages in the Bible that say things like? We wrestle against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. Number one, the disciples. The disciples were people that lived in their times and they were products of their culture. And just because they said in those passages. "Hold as a ghost doesn't mean it was true. In fact, every time they say "What does Jesus say to them, it is I be not afraid. Interestingly enough, they only say that about Jesus. They don't believe ghosts are just around. But every time they saw Jesus. Luke 23, they believe it's a spirit and Jesus says, no, it's me, flesh and blood. Luke 23, 37 through 39. Jesus says it is I do not be afraid. What about people who believe they've seen ghosts? You know, it is hard to convince people that they haven't seen what they believe they've seen. But what we do have is the Bible that says the departed spirits are in the Hadian realm. And just because we believe we've seen something. I think we all could testify to times in our lives when our eyes have deceived us and maybe our infatuation Hollywood and things that we've seen in movies have sort of. Paul says that sometimes there can be these lying wonders from the devil. Second Thessalonians two and verse nine. And we might think that we've seen things that we really haven't. And then in the third place, what about principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places? The Bible says they're there. But the Bible says in Ephesians six, twelve. There's spiritual wickedness in the high places, not here. We're equipped so long as we wear the armor of God, Ephesians six ten through 17. And so ghosts don't exist today because the spirits that have departed are either in paradise or in torment. And they'll be raised at the, the last day and reunited with bodies. Christians don't have to. In possession or anything like that, because. John Who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. First, John four and verse four. Number five, did the church of Christ disappear in the quote unquote dark ages? What about people who have never heard the true gospel? This question is about the idea that in the from the five hundreds to the sixteen hundreds after Constantine legalized Christianity, there arose this sort of Anglican type Christianity and Catholicism with the Eastern and Western schism. And there was no, as we would know it, churches of Christ. And so what about that? And the questioner says, what about people who were doing their dead level best to serve under those systems? Will they be lost? And what about people who have never obeyed the gospel? The proper way to answer this question is to go to the Bible and see what it says about the church and work our way back out from there. And so in Isaiah chapter two, Isaiah says one day God's going to establish his house. Isaiah two, two through four. And all nations will flow into it. It'll begin in Jerusalem and all nations will flow into it. Daniel spoke in Daniel 2 and verse 44 and Daniel said in the days of these kings and the Roman Empire, God's going to set up a kingdom and it will never be destroyed. The son of man would receive glory and honor and a kingdom and all nations would serve him and his dominion would last forever and his kingdom know no end Daniel seven thirteen and 14. And when you come into the New Testament, you find Jesus saying things like I will build my church in the gates of Hades or the bars of death. The fact that I'm going to die won't stop me from building it. And then he says in Hebrews 12:28 the kingdom of Christ cannot be shaken. Hebrews 12:28. What does that mean concerning this question? It means this. The Bible says the church that Jesus died to establish will never be destroyed. And so, I think we should proceed with caution when we use words like the quote unquote dark ages. Even words like restoration, which may try to say something good, but may communicate something unbiblical as if the church died and we somehow had to rescue her or resuscitate her. The Bible says no such thing. We may have to introduce biblical Christianity to the time, era or demographic in which we live, but we don't restore the church in the sense that she was ever in a sort of dead state in need of restoration, according to what the Bible says. And that may mean based on the men that have written the history books and the people that were out on Main Street, the Church of Christ, as we read of her in the New Testament, was not out front or was not highly publicized. But there have always been people. In places that were adhering to what the Bible says and were opposed to denominationalism and unbiblical Christianity. Men like Tyndale, Wycliffe and others gave their lives to translate the Bible and to oppose Catholicism and say that is not the New Testament order. Let's get back. They didn't always get all the way back, but they said, let's do what the Bible says. And so what about people that lived in that time period who were doing what they believe with their dead level best? I believe that God's going to judge everybody in the world. Second Corinthians five and verse ten. And we shouldn't speak where it's his job alone to speak. But here's what we should say. In the end, people will be lost because they're insincere or because they've never heard the gospel. People will be lost because they committed sin. That's why people are going to be lost. And so the way to ask this question would be this. Based on what the Bible teaches, if a person is not in Christ, they'll be lost. Can person X be saved having never obeyed the gospel? Will God save these people if they've never obeyed the gospel? And keep in mind that Jesus begged God in Gethsemane, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me. If God saves one person accountable who's never obeyed the gospel, then there was another way. And Jesus didn't have to die. Everybody who commits sin is in need of salvation and they'll be lost if they're lost eternally. Not because nobody ever brought them the gospel or because they were insincere. It'll be because they died in sin and they didn't obey the gospel. People who have never heard the gospel are fine with God so long as they never commit a sin. But if they need two things, they need a desire more than anything burning within them that says, I want to seek a way to be right with God. And the Bible assures if they have that, they'll find him. Matthew five and verse six. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be filled. And they need seekers going to find them so that those two personalities can unite in truth and hopefully. They can obey the gospel and be saved. When we say about people who have never heard the gospel, well, maybe God will just save them. That makes the Great Commission the worst idea in the world. We have ruined their heavenly guarantee. And Jesus says, hey, go out and tell all of these people that were otherwise saved that they need to respond to me or else they'll be lost. No, Jesus said go into all the world because they were already lost and they needed to obey the gospel in order to be made right with him. In every era, we need to keep this in mind. In the time in which we live, there's never been different flavors of Christianity. There's not a Presbyterian flavor and a Baptist flavor and an Anglican flavor or even a Church of Christ flavor. There's just New Testament Christianity. And it's always been God's desire that men take the pure seed of the New Testament and plant that in hearts. And it makes Christians and everybody in the world is going to stand and be judged based on their response to that gospel. No matter what age they lived in, no matter what time they lived in, no matter what was most popular. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? That's what's going to matter. And so instead of looking back to a time period to condemn those that God has justified or to justify those already condemned. What we should be saying to ourselves is this. Are we reaching out to the people in our day? I've met so many people concerned with the man in the bush country in Africa and not the man in their own backyard. Preach the gospel to people that in our own age and in our own time period, because in the end, judgment will take place at the throne of God. And everything on that day will happen just as it's meant to. Here's the last one. Number six. Is the book of Revelation unfolding today? And how should we read the book of Revelation? Go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter one. This is the last question tonight. Every book in the Bible has a context and the book of Revelation has one as well. You know, I've studied the Bible with people. I'm sure this has happened to Neil too. people say I've never read the Bible. And for whatever reason, they want to start at the back. That's the first thing they want to do. The book of Revelation assumes by the time you get to its pages that you are readily familiar with other parts of the Bible, because when you get to the book of Revelation, it's as if John is playing God's greatest hits. He introduces prophets in Old Testament history and so many other things when he's saying to the readers, you know, this song, you know, this one. And it's happening in your day and God will prove to be victorious. Now, in Revelation one, John says that it is a revelation of Jesus Christ is that which is being revealed. But no less than eight times in the book of Revelation, John uses this phrase. Shortly come to pass coming soon or the time is near. He uses it in Revelation chapter one and verse one. He uses it in Revelation one and verse three and the rest of them appear in chapter 22, chapter 22, verse six, verse seven, verse 10, 12 and 20. John says these things that I'm writing to you about are coming soon, coming soon for who? According to Revelation one and verse four, John wrote to the seven churches in Asia. I believe that there are principles and messages in the book of Revelation that apply to all time. But that's not why John. John doesn't even say he's telling us how the world will end or about the end of the world or anything like that. We impose that on the text. John mentions no such thing. John says he was writing to people in the first century who were suffering greatly. And the deliverance that John wrote about was shortly coming to pass. And when they read this, they would be encouraged. In that regard. Revelation 12 and verse 11 says that the people John wrote to overcame their oppression against the Romans. By the. They did not love their lives unto death. John said these people could win and be victorious in their day. That's who John was writing to, because they trusted in the son of God and in his blood. And we read it and we learn and we're benefited was not writing to tell us a play by play for how the world will end or about heaven or any of those things as important as those things are. And some principles from John are true in that regard. But John never says that's his point. John was writing to people about things that were going to shortly come to pass, a.k.a. in their lifetime that they could be encouraged by. The second part of this is how should we read Revelation? And the questioner says, is it literal or metaphorical or both? And the answer is yes, it's both. John does write in signs and symbols. Apocalyptic literature is that which is communicated to people in signs and symbols. Normally, God's people who've been suffering for a long time and God shows up in these signs and symbols and he says deliverance is on the way. It's not about the end of the world. apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature is about the end of someone else's world. People that are. Suppressing God's people and punishing them. God shows up in language that sounds like it's the end of the world. And what he's saying in those messages is it's the end of their world, the end of their reign. If you were to look up Isaiah 13, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Daniel 7 through Daniel 12, read the book of Zechariah. If you were to read those prophecies in those messages, you will see what John does in Revelation is not unique to John by any stretch he mentions the plagues to those familiar with the Exodus and all of these other signs to say God has done this before and the Romans will suffer the same fate as the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians and all the rest. And every other kingdom that opposes God's will be thrown down and God's people, wherever they stand, will ultimately be victorious. People that read Revelation shouldn't read it to look for signs of the end of the times. We should look to Scripture to hopefully find Jesus Christ and be saved. Somehow people have gotten the idea that the worst the world gets, that's somehow a sign that Jesus is coming back. But the New Testament doesn't say that the New Testament actually says when Jesus comes back, nobody will know Matthew 24, 36, and it'll be a normal day. Just like this one. It doesn't say there'll be wars and things will be terrible. It says people will be married and given in marriage and people will think all things are well. And then he'll come as a thief in the night and the world will be on fire. Second, Peter three, 10 through 13. And because of that, we should be ready. Read the Bible and don't look necessarily for signs. Look for the saving message of the Messiah so that whenever he comes or whenever our earthly lives expire, we'll be ready to meet him. Maybe tonight somebody needs to put on Jesus in baptism, believing that Jesus is the Christ. Believing that you're in need of being saved yourself and that baptism is for the forgiveness of sins, the Bible promises that God will wash away those sins. And you can